If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. For much of human history, nature was our god. We worshipped the sun, the moon, and later in Northern Europe, tree gods. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers tackle modern crises with ancient gods. Human gods sort of followed them, and then science arrived, and it seemed to sweep all of our gods away. Yet now science and technology have perceived that where once they used, we used to think they tamed nature, they're increasingly seen as plundering the planet, wrecking the climate. So were the ancients right? Is nature the source of all things and that which we should cherish most closely? Or should we instead renew our belief in human ingenuity and progress? Taking this on, we have former Chief Scientific Advisor to Blair and Brown and the Foreign Secretary's Special Representative on Climate Change, Sir David King, Baroness and former Green Party leader, Natalie Bennett, and the European Director of Brahma Kumaris and a pioneer of a spiritual basis for caring for the Earth, Sister Jayanti. Thanks for listening, and once you've finished today's episode, please do head to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Make sure you subscribe, and do check out our website at www.iitv for our weekly recommendations of what's trending here at Philosophy for Our Times. Back now to David Malone, who hosts this week's episode. I'll ask you to start, David, if I, if I may. And the, the question all three are going to address is, were the ancients right? Is nature the source of all things, and should nature be what we guard most closely? David, would you, would you give us three minutes? Very good question. Uh, we, humanity, have got ourselves into the situation where we are now faced with the greatest crisis humanity has ever had to face up to. We're all in this together, and we have to face it together. Climate change has gone too far, it took us 27 years to get agreement in Paris, and we still are not getting anywhere near managing the problem. I'm setting up in Cambridge a centre for climate repair. It's already gone too far. And where's all this come from? Our Western understanding and appreciation mode of living in the 20th century is all cast in the period of Greek history through Homer, Heraclitus, Aristotle and company. And I don't want to blame those philosophers at that time, but nevertheless, what followed through, and I'm going to bring in uh, the Judeo-Christian religions, 
What follows through was a break with the ancient tradition in Greece. The ancient Greek word physis meant the universe, the world you're thrown into. Uh, and what they, that becomes physics. And physics is not the world we're thrown into. Uh, in the Greek world, uh, the seas could suddenly storm up and people would be drowned. And it was obvious that the gods were doing this. Uh, and what you had to do was make sacrifices to the gods in order to try and appease them before making a major journey. But we have been on a triumphant march since that period uh, through the advancement of science, medicine, sociology, engineering, providing us with an unprecedented level of human betterment and well-being. One of the measures of this is that children live to maturity. Uh, here in Britain, if a woman had seven children, which was an average for hundreds of years, only two survived into maturity. Now they're all surviving into maturity. They all have children. And so the population of the planet is approaching 8 billion and will be 10 billion. And so we have been providing the energy we need by burning fossil fuels. We've been providing food we need by taking out forests. Over all of this period of time, we have spread our mode of living across the whole Earth, and that whole Earth is becoming scorched by this process. We have, in other words, not put a value on the natural world. And there's a, there's a loss of recognition of the fact that we human beings are both a part of nature and, uh, as other animals, fish, insects, etc., and separate from nature. And one minute. And in our rush to economic development, we have emphasized our apartness and our opposition to nature. We've treated nature as something that we can treat as a dustbin. But we have also managed the resources extraordinarily badly, as if they were never-ending. Now, if we fail to recover the essence of our being as a part of nature, we run the risk of losing the Earth and our footing in it. And that is what is happening today. It is only by attempting to understand how we lost the sense of the essence of the Earth that we can rebuild our mode of living to protect the only means of sustaining ourselves. Yes, we have to do what we can to deal with climate change, but let's bear in mind this critically important message. Thank you. Natalie, were the ancients right? Uh, well, I guess um, uh, this feels like the right question, given you know I've, I've acquired an ancient status uh, in the House of Lords, something that hasn't changed in centuries. And uh, I better begin by addressing you know the question I get all the time at the moment: What do you what do you want me to call you? There's a simple answer to this, which is Natalie. Um, but to come on to the, uh, the, the subject of today, uh, I guess I'm sitting in the middle here with sort of science on one side and, and religion on the other. And I am actually going to tread the middle path, which is not often where I am in politics, I'd have to say. Um, but we have, as David has outlined, been treating the planet as a mine and a dumping ground. And behind that has been an arrogant science that's thought that 
we just have this infinite space out there and we can just keep doing things. And if we create a problem, we'll find a scientific solution to it. And that these things are simple. We can find a silver bullet. Here's one problem. Here's the solution. And I think if we take a metaphor for this, my first degree is agricultural science. And I'm utterly astonished now that back in the late 1980s, I was taught soil science as a chemistry subject. It's this inert substrate. You look at it, you do some chemical tests on it, you work out which chemicals are missing, and you pull those chemicals in. That was science. We knew all about it. Yet we now know 30 years later that there are a million organisms in a teaspoon of soil. If you have a healthy soil, there are complex bacterial and, my, and um, fungal systems that will actually be producing all kinds of nutrients, that the plants will actually cultivate those fungal systems to produce the nutrients they need from the soil. If you pour a whole lot of fertilizer on that, you kill all those systems. Now, this is all absolutely science, but it's science, something that science knew nothing about. I wrote a report for the European Greens, Molly Scott Cato, MEP from the Southwest, on soil carbon last year. And what's truly astonishing is about a third of the academic journals I cited came from the past three years. They were published in the past three years. We have understood so little. We have science as being this giant lion stalking around, and it's immensely powerful and immensely strong. But you know, maybe it steps on a thorn in the forest. And maybe there's a bacteria on that thorn. And maybe, you know, the lion has antibiotics. But because we've been spraying antibiotics around like they're confetti, that bacteria has developed resistance to the antibiotics. And the bacteria fells the lion. So our natural knowledge you know, I'm, and I have to confess here, I feel slightly uncomfortable sitting here. You know, I don't have a spiritual bone in my body. That's my personal position. That's, that's not, not a party one. That's just where I am personally. But if we're going to have a new God or a new way of thinking, we have to learn from the ancients. The Italians in the 1920s had a proverb when artificial fertilizers first came in. Fertilizer is good for the, for the father and bad for the son. They mightn't have understood the microbial and fungicidal systems, but there was a traditional knowledge that looked at what fertilizer was doing and saying, this is damaging the traditional systems of fertilizing plants. So we need to look to lots of traditional knowledge, lots of traditional understandings. We need to think about sociology. We need to think about economics. So I, I've got a suggestion for a, a god, if you like. What we need is systems thinking. We need to bring together knowledge from lots of different fields, not think a narrow scientific approach has all the answers. Think that the past has some of the answers too. And you know, if you want to say, how do we bring in systems thinking, my answer is sustainable development goals. They're far from perfect, but they're a start. So you know, I don't expect to see it any time soon. But what I want to see, at least metaphorically, is a giant march down Whitehall chanting, what do we want? Systems thinking. When do we want it now? <laughs> Sister Gianti, what do you think? Were the ancients right? Should we value nature above all? Thank you for this opportunity. I have to say that spirituality only came into 
the conscious realm of the environment activists just a very short while ago. That's not to say that spirituality didn't have thoughts about it earlier. I myself have been connected with the Earth Charter, which was being created in the 80s at the UN in Geneva. And so from that time on, there has been a spiritual perspective. I also first want to define the difference between spirituality and religion, because there is quite a distinct difference. And then you can see where I step in. Religion is whatever is the tradition, the scriptures, the ideas, the rituals, all of those things. Spirituality is getting to know myself and being able to allow the highest within my own potential to develop and manifest. So very different to traditional religion. And I also want to say that, in fact, I appreciate greatly what science is doing today in its study of consciousness, because the things about consciousness or even positive psychology have only recently come onto the scene because it's only in recent times that we've been able to have the tools, the technology with which to be, with which to be able to explore what is consciousness because it's so subtle. How subtle are your thoughts? Can you catch them? Can you weigh them? Can you measure them? But they exist. It's real. It's not imagination. So that's the realm that we are dealing with. And when we started talking about consciousness and climate change, it was a shock to people. What does that have to do with anything? But actually, it's our consciousness that determines our vision, our attitude, and everything we do in relationship with the world around us and with people around us. And so nature is absolutely something that we can deal with only when we understand what's happening within our consciousness. There's also one more thing I want to say before I take up this aspect of consciousness and nature. When we're using the word ancient gods, well, the word that's used in India for deities, god, goddesses, little g, not one big g, but many gods and goddesses with different skills and qualities and so on. But the word devta, deity, means the one who gives. The sun constantly gives, doesn't stop 24-7 for millennia, millennia, millennia. The water, the earth, the air, every aspect of each element of nature has constantly been serving and giving to humanity. And so we see gods in that sense. And spirituality says, whatever is my awareness, that's going to be my attitude to the world around me. And so when I have the awareness of my own inner being as a spiritual being, not just bones and flesh, but when I know who I am, then I treat myself with respect, but I treat nature and its generosity and its abundance with a huge amount of love and respect. And so the perfect balance between self and nature is one of respect and love. Nature has given, and I love nature, and give back to nature my respect. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to pick up on that. Um, when we, we're all talking about nature, 
what do we mean by it? Because you've, you've, you've each sort of picked out something about nature. I, was, I wonder if it comes to you first, Matthew. You talked about nature not being inert. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about nature, what should we think about? Is it just something passive? Is it something that's not inert? And where, how do we fit into it? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, to begin with, we could have a whole debate, and I don't want to go down this route because I don't think it's particularly fruitful, but, of course, we are all part of nature. The plastic chair you're sitting on has been created by human beings which are natural. And, and the other way of looking this round, there is no such thing as a natural place left in the world. The depths of the Mariana Trench, the deepest bit of the ocean, the part that would seem most immune to human beings, is actually full of PCBs and other noxious chemicals. It's full of plastic. You know, humans have had an impact on every single inch of this earth. Every single bit of soil humans have had an impact on. Um, but, of course, we are also part of nature. So, you know, understanding that interaction, coming back to what I said about systems, you know, the whole thing is one system. We are part of that system. And, you know, there are some fairly negative and not the way I'd go about this reports of saying, you know, you can look at us as a species that's just wildly overrun. And if you look, you know, there are plenty of examples of that from biology and we know where that goes to. What is different about us is we have the kind of consciousness that, that Jayanti was taught, Sister Jayanti was talking about. Um, and we can think about the impact we're having. And that is something unique. We, so far as we know, no other species on the planet has done that. So we can think about what we're doing. Um, and that gives us a huge responsibility and a huge opportunity. And I think if we look at nature and the impact of nature, and again, this picks up something Sister Jayanti said, um, one individual animal almost never in nature has a massive impact. It's a species or, or a population that has an impact. And so, you know, we need to think as human beings as our impact and how we can work together to change the way we interact with all the other parts of nature, but we are part of that nature too. Hmm. David, what... I think, I think I was put on this panel as the scientist, <laughs> as opposed to Sister Gianti. I am very close to what she said, and if you like, I'm therefore quite spiritual. I certainly believe that some of the older religions, and I'm now moving away from Christianity and Judaism to Buddhism, uh, to the Taoism uh, in, uh, in China, which in my sense are more philosophies than religions. And in those parts of the world, you'll find there is a continuing respect for the fact that we are a part of nature. Every Chinese student at school today is taught that you've got to have respect for every other living creature. There's a sense in which we are all part of the same thing. And what I was saying is we have come to regard nature as apart from ourselves, not a part of ourselves. And the, if just look up the Oxford English Dictionary, see what it says about nature. It's those parts of the world that have not been impacted on by human beings. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a, a crazy definition. So my, my feeling is that, uh, and, and if I may say, I disagree rather more with Natalie, because Natalie's setting science up as the bad guy. And then she tells us what science has told her more recently about the state of soil. So there's a kind of contradiction in this. Science is simply knowledge. I go back to the ancient Greek meaning of that word. 
it's, it's knowledge. And knowledge is a good thing. We can't say um, that President Trump is a good thing, right? So the, the knowledge and truth are, are critically important. Where is the problem in my view? I think it is that our economic system, uh, which is a free market system deregulated, that has no respect for the natural world, and that's where all the critical problems are. I don't believe that that system, which I, I have to admit has delivered human well-being across the world, I don't believe that system is fit for purpose in the 21st century. So here's a challenge. We're up against the capitalist system as it exists. How do we change that? Are you, are you saying that you are, in some sense, anti-capitalist, that you think that, that the capitalist system has run its course and is now toxic? Economists are telling me, no, no, the free market system is okay, and the biggest free market failure is climate change. And I said, well, well, hold on. Climate change is about to create havoc to the entire planet for us and for other living creatures. Uh, I believe we've got 10 years to get this right, no more than that, and this means a massive exercise globally. Are we going to manage that under the, the present capitalist system as it is now? No. So do we have to change that system? I've got no doubt we do. <coughs> um, spirituality teaches us not only about ourselves, but also about the laws of the universe, the laws of action, reaction, cause and effect that involve human beings, but also the laws of nature and how it is that both of these things interact. And so on one level, I see us, us as being part of nature, absolutely. But then we also see that this body is earth, <coughs> air, water, fire, space. And you were right, David, when you said that the Eastern systems recognize more that we are part of that. So when we are treating human illnesses, then we are looking at all of these things in balance or out of balance. So definitely. So this is part of nature itself. But within nature, we see many, many forms of living creatures. And within all those forms, that being that has consciousness to the extent that we do, I think that animals also <laughs> feel and think and do many of the things we do. But human consciousness and its exploration of itself is quite unique. And so we have a responsibility to be able to understand the laws of nature and work within that. What we've done is actually do a lot of destruction rather than creation. We think we are creative people, but in fact, there's been a lot of destruction going on. Um, you see a tree, and instead of recognizing its beauty and its contribution to the world in so many different ways, including oxygen, etc., you see it as pounds and pence, because you see it as timber. That's it. And so, yes, this idea that it's everything is a resource available for my benefit personally, it's this attitude that has led us to this particular situation. Spirituality says, can I reduce my lifestyle to a simple lifestyle so that my carbon footprint isn't impinging in the way that it was? Can I tread lightly on the earth so that I'm able to allow nature and other creatures also to live. And so I see that our relationship with nature has to come back to one of 
recognizing what are the laws that govern human existence and nature. Well, I just wanted to come back to David in terms of, I entirely agree with your economic approach, um, but just to say the sort of, I'm criticizing a particular sort of science, an arrogant science that says, okay, we understand a bit of chemistry, therefore we understand the soils. And what a lot of science over the past three or four decades and earlier failed to do was really ask the question, what don't we know? Said, hey, we know this, so we've answered everything. And there has been a culture within science that has failed to acknowledge how much we don't know. I don't recognise that. Well, it, this was the science I was taught in, in the 1980s in Australia. This is, it was indeed like a religion. We have the facts, you learn the facts, you recite the facts in the exam, you go out and apply the facts. And that was the way science was taught to me. And it has the way science has existed in significant parts of the operation in science universities. It has never been like that. If, if I'm a scientist and I'm sitting at the cutting edge of my science and I publish a paper, somebody else may well shoot me down. And what they've done is observe the world better than I have. Right, so we've always got the real world we're trying to describe. You cannot equate it to religion where you're pulling truth from somewhere else, right? It is the real world scientists are describing. I simply don't recognize that. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Well, it sort of moves us on to the second theme, which is this notion of, you know, can we, should we harness nature for our benefit or should we revere it for itself? And um, on the, Natalie didn't, I don't think she, she got this impression from nowhere. And so is, it, is there a difference between the kind of idealists, ideals, science you're talking about and the kind of science where Monsanto says glyphosate's great, trust us, spread everywhere. And then later we go, oh, well, maybe not. Let me take as an example the case of antibiotics. Okay. Uh, th there is something that has given human well-being a tremendous boost. So massive scientific advance measured in terms of human well-being. In the United States, most beef is produced in Colorado in beef factories, 90% of the beef. The calves are fed with alfalfa, but also with antibiotics and growth hormones. In nine months, they grow to full size, whereas they, it would take nine years. And this is then fed to human beings. And you're wondering why Americans are bigger than others. <laughs> <laughs> the, the point I'm going to make now is, it's that behavior which is harnessing the economic system in the United States. It's that use of science that is destroying the utility of science. Antibiotics, as a result of what the Americans are doing, will become uh, non-viable. They will no longer function. So I, I think what I'm saying is the science is there. The people who use the science are the people who have to be, if you like, managed 
so that we manage respect towards the natural world. Okay, but I mean, it sounds as if you're saying, look, the science are, are, are pure and wonderful creatures who are just in search of the truth, and then some, some corporate person comes along and perverts the whole thing. But there are a lot of scientists who work for those corporations. And so is there some, do the scientists have some responsibility to say, actually, Mr. Monsanto, I'm not going to do that work for you, and you're misrepresenting my science? The last thing I would ever say is that there are no bad scientists. <laughs> there are as many bad scientists as there are bad human beings. Fine. And so you can, yes, you can work for Monsanto and explain to everyone that Monsanto is good for the world. What well, you're doing is selling Monsanto products. Right. Uh, we all know that. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I mean, is there a sense in which then that kind of, I know I'm picking them out, but corporate science is um, somehow at least spiritually failing, if not morally failing? In fact, it's not just one part of humanity that's to blame in a sense. We're picking on the scientists now. <laughs> yes. But in fact, if you look at what's going on, it's the shift of consciousness from a spiritual identity in which I relate to myself as that inner being, and I see each and every one of you as part of my family, seeing you as spiritual beings also, without getting distracted by gender or color or race or age or any of those things. And what happens is when I associate my identity with a physical form, this is matter in a certain sense. And so we get materialistic from matter. Our consciousness comes to materialism. From materialism, we become consumers. And where the problem lies is the consumer society. Um, India was much more in touch with its soul in a sense and much more in touch with nature um, 30, 40 years ago, and today one would say India is developed, and I would challenge that very strongly. And um, what happens today is that today every single small town in India has a shopping mall. That didn't exist 40, 50, or even 30 years ago. It does today. So I don't think it's one part of humanity that's the cause. I think it's consumerism, materialism, where we've forgotten about our own inner values. When we connect with spirituality, we connect with our core values of peace, of love, of truth, of happiness. Today, we connect all of these things with finding them outside, trying to find happiness out there, trying to find joy and peace out there. And it's not true, but this is then the whole advertising syndrome buy this product and you'll be happy forever. It's a joke, isn't it? But of course, it's part of the whole system of consumerism and materialism. And I, I think it's interesting that you use the word system there because I do want to come back to you know, the argument for systems thinking here. And I think as I was listening to David talking about, oh, yes, you know, these bad scientists... Um, defending Monsanto or whatever. But of course, you have to be a really, or you've had to be a really extraordinarily brave scientist to investigate and come out and publish a report against glyphosate. You've had to, the sociology of this, the economics of this, the practicality of this is you have this thought that maybe there's this never impact, you do some experiments, but you have to be extraordinarily brave to publish that paper. Now, that's the practical reality of the sociology of science, and we have to understand the sociology of science. 
And you know, this is partly economic systems, but it's not only economic systems. If we think of another case study, which is where um, this is 20 or so years ago now, people thought that ulcers were caused by stress and anxiety and bad diets. And there were a couple of scientists in Australia who thought actually this might be a bacterial infection. And there, wasn't, there were some economic interests here, some manufacturers of antacids and stuff, but they weren't certainly as dominant as Monsanto is in terms of glyphosate. But they had to fight enormously hard because there was a scientific belief. We understand this. We know about this. We understand all of these systems. And to challenge those systems, particularly if you are, as you generally are, a junior scientist challenging the senior professor, challenging a raft of senior professors, we need to understand the sociology, the challenge, the difficulties of that, and the way that institutions and structures, as well as economics, stand in the way of really understanding what's happening in the world. I don't want to spend the whole time disagreeing with Natalie, but her description of science, I spent 45 years in research. That is nothing to do with the science that I experienced around the world while I was doing my research. In other words, if you were the maverick, you stood out, you published a paper, and it was different from everybody else, you stood out. And people might attack you, but do not believe that you would be prevented or ridiculed for publishing. You, and this person has now been recognized with a major prize. So the system will examine what you're saying critically, because it's very different from what is believed, but you are expected to do that as a scientist. And if you want to rise, as he did, above the rest, we all know you have to do that. So it's, it's not the world of science that I know. Um, can um, I just add? Please, yeah. um, sometimes I've heard scientists say that, in fact, science doesn't get into the whole system of values and technology is separate, and that's then getting into the system of consumerism, etc. But in fact, every human being has values. And whether I'm a scientist or not a scientist, there should be the situation where it's my conscience connected with my values that guides me in my life. And because we've forgotten about spirituality and said, well, that's nothing to do with life, all of this, so then we've forgotten about values. And so we come to a state today where we don't have that same level of respect or compassion or humility or love anymore. And so I think, again, the big cry that I have is come back to knowing who you are, and then you find all those values within yourself. And then the label of that is spirituality. Thank you. Um, which brings us, I suppose, to the, the, the third theme, which is we've talked about what's wrong. But if we're, if we're looking at a, at a way forward, and as you said, you believe we have a decade to put things right, is the answer going to be as, uh, 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 relying on a spiritual transformation that sweeps the globe? Or should we put, put our faith in... I'm sorry, I'm gesturing towards you because you're the person we've nominated to carry this burden. So I'm, I'm going to say... Is it science intent or is it positive? We have, is it a political solution? It's not, it's not either or. We need all of the above. Okay. So I, I, I'm setting up the Centre for Climate Repair in Cambridge. Social scientists, sociologists, everyone is involved. It is engineers as well. Why is it engineers? We have to refreeze the poles. The pole, the Arctic Ocean is now exposed in the Arctic summer to sunlight. 
The Arctic region is now heating up at two and a half times the rate of the rest of the planet. And Greenland, sitting there, is losing its ice. When it's all gone, sea levels will be seven meters higher than they are today. That's what's already on the cards. So we have to refreeze the poles. Now, how do we do that? We are, I've got a group of 20, 30 people around the world. We're discussing how we might do this. This is an engineering challenge. I believe we can do it. It's like landing a man on the moon, although I, at the time, thought that was a useless exercise. <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> Kennedy says to the Americans, we're going to land a man on the moon in 10 years' time. In the 1960s, that was one hell of a challenge. Right? That was a really big challenge. And they managed it. And I think we can manage these challenges as well. But we need all the science and engineering that we have at our disposal. And then at the same time, as we move forward, we have to learn to return to our level of consciousness, our awareness of each other and what we are, that, that weightless thing that is consciousness. We have to return to examine that. Because certainly in most of our competitive lives, we lose sight of it. And so I, I think we need both. Can I, can I just add one thing? I think I'm right in saying when you say it's seven metres, I think a large proportion, maybe even the bulk of the world's nuclear power stations are within seven metres of the present sea level. And since it takes about a decade to even shut one down, that would certainly argue for what you're saying, that we really can't hang around. Well, <laughs> I mean, if they're starting yes, to flood, yes, and it's going to take... But if I may say, it's, it's, it's a very pointed argument. Yes, right? I, I'm just, it's my job. Uh, no, I, I am put forward as a nuclear salesman because when I was in government 18 years ago, I said I couldn't see how Britain could be net zero emissions without nuclear energy. I no longer believe that, and I saw nuclear energy as a last resort, but climate change is such a big challenge that I thought we even needed that last resort. So I, I think 7 meters sea level rise, 80% of the world's cities will no longer be livable. That's the real challenge, right? And what is the first big city to go under? And it's imminent, Calcutta. And across the water from Calcutta is Bangladesh, also going underwater. 160 million people looking for somewhere else to live. If that's not going to destabilize the planet, I don't know what. I think going. it could be a bit of a problem. <laughs> Natalie, as a politician, what are you going to do about this? Come on. Well, I must admit I'm feeling much more comfortable now because I'm entirely agreeing with David in terms of what he's presenting is essentially what I call systems thinking, um, which is taking, you know, I don't wish to downcry science. I just think that science has to be accepted critically and it has to be critical of itself in a way that it often hasn't been. But if you understand that problems have a sociological and economic, all of these dimensions, and we essentially have to change everything, and I think, you know, one of the things we have to recognise, and it kind of ties with my point thinking about nature, is that humans have impacted on every square inch of this whole planet. Um, you know, and we've damaged every square inch of this whole planet. And we have to think about, as Sister Jayanti said, treading much more lightly. And so this is, looks like, and is, an enormous challenge. But this is where perhaps what you might call the spiritual dimension would come in. I would perhaps call the, the well-being or quality of life dimension comes in. Because if we created a wonderful life for human beings while trashing the planet, then it would be really hard to say, well, we've got to take away this wonderful life because we've got to stop, we've got to protect nature. But actually, we have created a dreadfully unequal, stressed, insecure, desperate society around the world. 
And the fact that we've got a change for the purposes of nature is actually really good news for human well-being and existence. And that's where thinking about what is well-being, what is a good life, is really important part of this whole issue. And this is where thinking about what kind of balance in life is. I mean, you know, one of the things that um, perhaps makes this really concrete and practical is um, there's a certain sort of politics, it seems to be associated with the theory that, well, I'm a politician and I get by on four hours sleep a night. Well, I get by on three hours sleep a night. Now, I have my first degree is biological science, and I know that to be a healthy, functioning organism, you need seven to eight hours sleep a night. And any politician who tells you that they're getting by on three or four hours sleep is either A, lying, or B, shouldn't be allowed anywhere near the levers of the country. <laughs> and that, you know, kind of ties all together all of this thinking about that we have to think about our own biology, our own existence as a natural organism, but we've also got to think about the politics of this and why are people saying this and how does this all fit together? Mm. Are any of our, is our political system up to this? Because um, if we take a 10-year timeline and um, most political parties, no, the, the political system takes 40 years just to agree that there is a problem, never mind doing anything about it. If Roger Hallam was here, I think he might be saying, look, if we put our faith in the gods of technology or old-fashioned gods or the gods of politicians, we're all sunk we're going to have to look to ourselves and get out on the street. Does that work for you? Uh, very much so, because in, in that question, the word I'd focus on, does our political system work? And what do you mean by our? <laughs> if you mean UK, well, I reckon I'd probably get about 100% agreement in this room that we have a broken political system that's utterly failed. That's easy. If, however, we look at, say, some of the Scandinavian countries, which not coincidentally uh, some of the countries that are doing best in terms of climate and treatment of nature and also better societies for people, less stressed, less unequal, they are the most democratic ones. So I would say I come back to whatever question you ask me. If you ask me about seaweed, somewhere I will eventually get back to saying the answer is democracy. <laughs> and, you know, this perhaps squares with what Sister Jayanti is saying, is, you know, people trusting in themselves, believing in themselves, being empowered in themselves. And what you have is, you know, what I would say is the other side of politics, the far right that looks for, you know, the great leader riding up on the white horse, leading the people to the new promised land. Or alternatively, you have a society where you say, say everyone's important, everyone can make a difference, everyone can make decisions about their own lives, their communities, their society. So yes, I think the answer is a political system and that political system is democracy and it's about time we made Britain one of them. Okay. Um, and that, that sounds great, but um, let's say they re-elect Trump. Do we have time? Should we just go, oh, well, that was the choice. Uh, well, um, that, uh, I did a debate with an American philosopher who's, who's suggesting we gave up on, on um, democracy because of Trump. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that assumes that Trump has anything to do with democracy. The American political system is less of a democracy than the British political system is. Of course, so, but it's still you know, the just political system, isn't it? So if, if, if we put our faith in your God, I'm making you the political God, yeah. um, <laughs> is your political God, does he do great, she, do great speeches, but she bugger all? Uh, well, if it's one person, I would agree with your second characterisation. <laughs> if it's all of the people collectively together, empowered and engaged with the time and energy to act, then yes, democracy can do it. All of the people together can do it. Um, um, my own sense is that 
what's happening within nature and climate change is a huge, huge wake-up call for all of us. Um, to be able to look inwards and realize that whatever's going on inside is what's happening outside, in the sense that if at this moment we see that our minds are not in a state of harmony and order, but in a state of chaos, there's a tension between my conscience and my values, and so the struggle is going on within, so all of these struggles within are being reflected outside in our world, whether in politics or our relationship with nature. And so, plus we see whatever it is that's going on, it started from human consciousness, my thinking. And so I don't think it takes a long time to change the way we think. I just think that at this moment, because we're at such a crisis, I don't see an alternative we have to shift our thinking to a spiritual consciousness so that then we can take charge of what's going on within ourselves and then express that which we know to be the highest so that our relationship with each other changes. Instead of division and chaos, it comes back to a state of harmony. And then our relationship with nature can also come back to harmony. We've heard a little bit about democracy, and I'm, I'm just going to say that I think we are suffering from the failure of democracy in this country and in the United States and in several parts of Europe. And this is a dangerous time. If uh, I'm not going to suggest it's going the way that it went in 1932-33 in Europe, but for an older guy like me, it's looking horribly familiar. I think we need to be very, very careful because if you go back to 1932-33 in Germany, there are no Germans who believe what uh, actually happened would transpire. It's a slippery process, and already we're seeing the breakdown in the democratic system. I I'm going to say, who controls the media? It's a very small number of extraordinarily wealthy people. Once again, it's big money controlling the media. And do people follow the media? Well, I've spoken to the editor of the Daily Mail uh, when he was running an anti-vaccination campaign, and he said nobody listens to what the Daily Mail says. Now, he knows that's nonsense. He's not just selling copy, he's influencing people. And so I, I think the danger is that we have allowed a very small percentage of our population to acquire enormous wealth, and a very large proportion of our population in the sixth wealthiest country in the world, still on the streets. So I, I think we have a broken democracy, and we need to think about that. In a way, that's a sub-issue. But it is important, because everyone can see there's something wrong. And in the 1930s in Europe, everyone saw something wrong. And there was a polarization. And that polarization doesn't always end in the right place. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm afraid we have run out of time. Um, uh, all I would say from all of that is choose your gods very, very carefully. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Natalie Bennett, Sir David King and Sister Gianti. For more on today's topic, why not have a listen to episode 101, Corruption and Climate Change, with Piers Corbin. Or have a listen to episode 105, Green Growth, 
where Natalie Bennett envisions a radical new future. Please do make sure you subscribe, tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast, and of course tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.